Hey, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Hey, Angela, it's great to be here. Nice to nice to properly meet you today. I'm looking forward <laughs> to what we're going to chat about. Yeah, yeah. And we had a little bit of time to to warm up right before this conversation. And I'm just really excited about, first of all, we were talking about the rebrand of the podcast um, from Humanly Possible to Social Responsibility at Work. And the work that you're doing, I think, just beautifully ties into this conversation. So before I give it all away, uh, tell us who you are, what you do, but also the impact you're looking to make on the world. Absolutely. Uh, so my name is Paul Bellows. I am uh, an entrepreneur. I'm based up in northern Canada, far from everything cool. But we like <laughs> to think we got of our own cool up here. It's just sometimes it's just cold. It's a little um, chilly. <laughs> little chilly in the winter. We're in the good time of year, though. It's, it's August, so it's, it's nice and warm. Um, mm. But my firm is called Yellow Pencil. And we, we started 25 years ago as a digital agency. And we were designing websites and building platforms and working with everyone from Home Depot to banks and, you know, just whoever had complex information to deliver. We were quite good at delivering complicated information. Hmm. But in the last five or six years ago, um, and it's partly just because, you know, sort of in, in my heart, I've got, uh, you know, I'm really interested in the impact we can make in the world. You know, I, I became a dad eight years ago and, and for the first time. And and you, you start to start to look out at the world and say, well, I could run an organization that generates revenue or generates profit for shareholders and that's a necessary thing to do those are unfortunately mm. the constraints we live in or fortunately unfortunately it's just the reality of our world but it doesn't mean we can't also have impact you know that we can't actually like deliver value back into the world so uh you know we we like to talk about um the public sector uh mm. and, and and that's the organizations in the world you know we would call some of them government but there's a lot of folks around government that are sort of responsible for delivering the essential services that keep our society whole, you know, and, mm. you know, again, you can't fix, I'm not here to fix politics. Politicians can continue to promote ideas and, and kind of rage against each other. That, that, that's there. But then there's this core of people that just come to work each day and they're about delivering essential services, making sure roads get paved, that schools operate, um, that, that essential services are delivered, that folks in great need, whether that's a, a mental health crisis or, or, or in a situation of safety, you know, like, like mm -hmm. our, our, our law enforcement, our court system, you know, all these parts of, of, of government that are these essential services that, that really are about creating equity. You know, my mindset is when, when government is working like it should and, and like every organization, it doesn't always, you know, but when mm -hmm. government is working as it should, it ensures that there's a floor that, that no one falls below that we in our society say, you know, uh, the other members of our species deserve an absolute minimum threshold of life experience and quality of life. There are things called human rights that we believe in. And mm -hmm. government is the organization whose, whose purpose, you know, in addition to other things, but primarily is to ensure that we maintain those floors, that there is someone when someone's having a mental health crisis in a public park, that there's someone to make sure they get to a safe place that they can be cared for rather than just left to fend for themselves. You know, these, these moments of people being in crisis that, that someone who's lost a job suddenly and maybe just doesn't have the savings to feed their children has a way to make sure that there's food on the table for their family before they have to make really awful decisions while they look for their next job. You know, all of these systems that create this, this yes. safety net, you know, below which we don't want people to fall as members of our common species, that's the role of government. So mm -hmm. I know I'm not, that's not universally agreed to in the world, but that's my mindset and where I come from. 
And so our company is here to help build trust in government. That's, that's really our fundamental purpose. And I think the trust comes from communication, you know, and so that's, that's what we get out of bed to do is to help government to communicate effectively in the current digital world, which is a fragmented, omni-channel, messy, messy, messy world to communicate in. There was a time when building a website was enough and it's just not that way anymore. We need to be strategic. We need to think about where people are actually mm-hmm. getting their information. And we need to tell consistent stories and realistic stories and stories that are relevant to people and deliver information that's relevant to people in the world as it actually is. And that, that's a hard journey. So that's what we're about. Yeah. And, and the reason why I was um, so interested in talking about this is because, first of all, it was kind of fascinating to me to understand the fact that trust is our like greatest currency right now, right? Mm-hmm. Like people are battling for people's trust. Organizations are battling to bring in good employees into their organizations, right? Um, during COVID, I, I, you know, from, from a U.S. perspective, uh, I remember working in industry and a lot of people would come to me as the head of HR and say, please tell me what's going on. I yeah. am hearing this on this news channel and this on this news channel. And the CDC is saying something different, and I don't know who to trust. And people would come to me and to the executive team at our organization to be like, please consolidate this <laughs> into something that makes yeah. sense and is digestible and is fact-based. And um, I'm just going to read this because I want to get this right here. But there was a recent um, report, and I think um, this organization, Edelman, their uh, communications <clears throat> consulting firm, uh, they do a report on a like a trust barometer and they believe that trust is our greatest currency. And in their words, lasting trust is the strongest insurance against competitive disruption, the antidote to consumer indifference, and the best path to continued growth. And so they basically, in this recent report in 2021, focused on employees and where their beliefs came from and you know how that omni-channel was working. And um, you know basically, they were saying that a lot of employees are now looking to their organizations for, for information, which is, I don't know. I don't know if that's an issue. I think it is. And it kind of gets back I, I to think, this. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge think? issue, right? Well, yeah, sorry. I stepped on your toes there. But, you know, um, it, it's a huge issue because, you know, you, you think of I'm an employer. Um, if my employee comes to me and says, um, you know, Globally, you know, the media landscape, I don't understand the story, you know, elected officials, I don't understand the story, professional pundits, I don't understand the story. Can you interpret it for me? That's an odd place to put me as the person who helps you build digital products in your job during the day, right? Like, you know, like that, I'm a, it's not, I don't really have the qualifications to interpret that. And I'm not sure that it would be responsible of me too. And yet, where is the trusted voice? You know, who can, who can you trust these days? And occasionally, you know, in, in, in the situation for employers, we're getting asked to wear a hat that is above our pay grade, essentially. You know, like, I'm not yes. sure that I, you probably shouldn't come to me for health information either, because right. I am not a physician. You know, I have mm-hmm. no training and no expertise. And yet in organizations, it, it would be, an, it's odd to see that, that kind of shift of, you know, I might trust my employer more than I trust the people whose actual career it is to tell me these things. And what a funny place to have, have moved to in our society. You know, it, it, it's a privilege, but it's an enormous responsibility for employers to, to wear that hat and, and potentially a liability um, 
And, and yet here we are. Yeah. And, and to your point, I mean, this gets back to the government or these, um, you know, public sector organizations that have been built to create, to fix, to, you know, create equality or equity, depending on what we're talking about. Yeah. And really, usually the the main barrier to that is usually communications, right? And how information Absolutely. gets to the public. And, yep. you know, everyone talks about like, you know, we always make fun of like the DMV, right? Like we go to the DMV yep. and it's like the most inefficient system or we go to, you know, you know, all these systems seem to seem to be inefficient. And if they're inefficient, they're not delivering the services that they need to provide. So how do we do that better? How does digital make that happen? Well, it's, it's such an interesting moment. Um, so we actually, so here's a funny little business anecdote that, that's so like relevant to, to this topic. So uh, in 2019, the California DMV had this massive problem. So this is going to be a very U.S. centric thing. So folks outside of the U.S. may not know about this. Maybe not everyone in the U.S. knows what real ID is in, in, inside of the U.S., so Real ID is this authenticated identification system that can sort of bind who you are to a piece of ID. And up until 2020, now this is, I got to catch up because I'm not sure exactly what's happened over COVID. I know a lot of things were delayed, but up until 2020, you know, so your passport would be qualified as Real ID because there's mm. sort of some biometric information. It's been officially certified. If you lose it, there's a whole thing to re regain your passport and be re-authenticated, but it allows you to travel internationally. So Real ID is this, this U.S. concept that we're going to apply to driver's license and other forms of, of state-issued identification so that you could use it to access facilities or, or, or services. So mm -hmm. up until 2020, Real ID was required to enter certain U.S. government buildings, um, uh, to enter a nuclear power facility in the U.S. So as a Canadian visiting, if I wanted to get into certain federal government buildings when I came for meetings, I had to bring my passport, and that was mm -hmm. considered valid. What was going to change in 2020 was Real ID was going to be required to board a domestic flight in the U.S. That's right. Mm -hmm. So now you think about the amount of identification reissues that have to happen in a year because not everybody in the U.S. has a passport. You know, not everybody in the U.S. has ID. So the, the California DMV had this major timeline coming. They had a brand new executive director. They had ancient technology and, and ancient practices around technology, like good practices, but from another era. And now they're saying, okay, we might need to like issue 30 million IDs this year mm. so that people can get on airplanes to do their job, to see their family, because this deadline is coming fast. So they, they held this sort of agile sprint kind of based procurement thing. Where, and we were actually shortlisted of one, one of 10 companies globally who got to the final conversation. And they were saying, how are we going to provide this massive layer of service? And so our concept, we, what we pitched was, what we're going to do is we're going to roll specially outfitted sprinter vans across communities all across California. You'll have sort of a digital interface for finding where they are, booking an appointment, preparing with all the things you need to bring. And they might be outside your office. You can pop out at lunch. You know, you don't. So we're going to essentially expand the built infrastructure of the DMV for a short period mm -hmm. of time, this burst of extra capacity and staffed vehicles or sort of this high security kind of like cloud connections, no data lived on the van. And we're going to just give you this sort of like, huge footprint, like expand the surface area of the DMV just around ID issuing around real ID and the biometric and fingerprint capturing. This is this thing we're going to do. And they were going to buy it. And we were, so we were going to, you know, this is the kind of the kind of digital solution. And just as they were sort of getting on the decision of which of these vendors they were, they were going to pick, we were one of 10 and they were going to pick a group. 
Then COVID happened and I got spared having 250 sprinter van leases on the ground in California with me as a Canadian, not even able to enter the country to, to run this business. So anyway, oh, it, was right. a, yeah. it was such a cool opportunity. It was going to be this amazing way that digital technology might let us do something powerful and sort of, you know, hit this thing, getting people onto planes to do their jobs, see their loved ones. And it was a narrow miss for us. It, it probably would have been an, an existential event for our business if I actually had to finance the lease of these 200 grounded sprinter vans all over the state of California. So that was, that was my business adventure there, but that's the kind of thing, you know, like saying like digital technology is not just about websites or Twitter or, you know, how, how, how do we influence people on TikTok? It's what else is possible because of technology that we have and how do we employ that technology in a responsible way in a way that immediately returns value back to government, you know, to say, it's not just about doing cool things. It's not about, augmented reality to process mm-hmm. a, a fishing license that doesn't add a lot of value to anybody but you know kind of ha- what's possible what's within the state of the art and how can we execute on this in a way that improves service outcomes improves communication outcomes and lets government respond to some of the real-time events that occur that are just massive in scale and disruptive in nature yeah and i think um it kind of gets to this idea of you know change management which is something that you know i kind yeah. of work in you know where it's like how do you change um how do you change what do you, how do you get something from point a to point b something yeah. really big something really transformative and your task with filling in the gaps and it's not just about um assets but it's also about changing behavior and oh, the yeah. human condition and what we respond to so i think it's just you know kind of this looking at providing these services through a transformative and change management lens. And one of the things like literally one of the vehicles literally and figuratively (laughs) could be, you know, these vans that you uh, use to go into the communities and bring the service to people. Yeah. So you talk about change management. I just wanted to like latch onto that for a second, because I think it's really interesting. You know, you sort of think about the journey that government is on right now. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so what, one of my one of my friends and, and someone who really inspires me is, is a woman who's in, in, in my part of the world, Dominic Bond, and she's the chief sort of essentially the chief digital officer for the province of Alberta, which is where I live. Mm-hmm. Provinces for you in America, provinces like a state, but <laughs> friendlier. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and we say sorry more. Um, but the or, or maybe should. Um, but. <laughs> So Dominic is, is responsible for sort of this, this transformation. She said, we were having a conversation a, a year or two ago, and she said this interesting thing. She said, you know, we, so we have an IT department mm. in the government of Alberta who's responsible for IT and technical service delivery. She says there's 1,200 employees of that department who run all these systems. The weird thing is none of them are designers and coders. They're mm. procurement experts. They're project managers. They're, they're program managers. They're security experts. But no one's writing code and building software. and and so. That's the old way of government, you know, which is, oh, we need a system. We will do an RFP. We will buy mm-hmm. something. We will hire a vendor. We'll manage that vendor. They will deliver the solution. We're, we're procurement and program managers here. But that's not where government is going. You know, so, so you look at things like in the U.S., some of the, the you know, the, the um, you know, 18F, which is essentially a digital agency inside of government that said, we're going to go help government actually become more like a software company, more like a startup, because that's actually where technology is going. Mm. But then you think about who works in government 20 years ago and who might work in government in 20 years if the nature of the organization itself moves from 
procurement administration, bureaucracy, and pro- project management to agile design build teams that can be responsive and, and build high secure, highly usable applications in real time and improve those and maintain them. Well, those are really different organizations. How do you change the entire DNA of just what the organization is, you know, on, on these short times, you know, and 40 years might sound like a, a long time scale in the world, but it's, it's a short time scale at like, like human career and employment. And like a lot of people go into government because they say, hey, I, I, hey, I want to do some social good in the world. I want to work for my community. But I also kind of want just a reasonable paying job where I can live and raise a family for 50 years. You know, I can have these mm-hmm. careers. It's kind of one of the reasons you go work in government. It's not the highest paying job. It's not, you know, maybe always the coolest job. And it comes with a lot of overhead of just the bureaucracy. But people do that because there's this great trade off of, you know, it's a career. I can count on mm-hmm. it. I can I can grow old in this. And if that's suddenly no longer true, and suddenly I need to become something that I wasn't before, that's a big change to ask of government itself. How do you create the conditions for that kind of success? And so I think mm-hmm. that's one of the crises government's in right now is it is hard to become a modern digital communication provider because everything about who you are and who works there and how you operate and what you even do all day, you know, your actual oper- the nature of your operations has to change. That's a big thing to ask of, of a of a more bureaucratic organization in nature. That's it's a big, it's a big lift. Yeah, and it sounds like you know we're really talking about how do we how do we future proof, you know, this sector. Yeah. But you yeah. know, I also think about, and I would love to get your perspective on this because you know, digital transformation we know is like we're in it. It's not like it's not yeah. like this long term thing anymore. It's like it's happening, but we still see a lot of inequities around who has access to technology who can afford it who can so do you see a shift happening there where things are becoming more accessible how do you how do you plan for that with your own company to make sure um communication channels are accessible to everybody so i I think when i look at who's doing this well you know um uh, a a colleague of mine uh lawrence edda he's the chief digital officer for the city of toronto so mm. Toronto is the fourth largest city in North America. The first, of course, being Mexico City, largest city in North America, then New York, L.A., and Toronto. So this is a big region. They have a lot of people in this region. It's, it's very spread out. There, there's a, there's a, it's also an enormous immigration and newcomer um, kind of destination. Mm-hmm. People who come to Canada for new life, coming to kind of restart, come, want to come to North America. Toronto is a place a lot of people come and, and, and newcomers to Canada don't have, you know, like there's language barriers, there, there's credit mm-hmm. barriers, there's job qualification barriers, there's just cultural barriers to being successful. So you look at Toronto and there's this huge disparity on, on who lives in the community and their access information, and even their cultural expectation of what government is for. Mm-hmm. So Lawrence has this vision for how we're going to do this. And, you know, so there's simple things like, you know, simple things. There's straightforward things like let's make things are accessible. Let's make sure they work on any device. But then he's also looking at how is broadband deployed in our city regionally? Like, is it accessible mm-hmm. to people everywhere? Or do you need like $150 a month, you know, cable or telephone subscription to get the high speed internet and everything else? And, and can, can everyone afford that? Is everyone in their community housed? And do they have, you know, do they actually have local internet? Or are they relying on a local library or like, a city hall or sitting outside Starbucks, you know, yeah. you know, how, how are people actually getting to internet? Um, and then can we deliver to the devices that they have? So they're, they're doing mm-hmm. huge work on supporting the commercial entities in the organization that provide business and, and, and consumer internet to say, we also need like broadband Wi-Fi in the city. 
that just blankets the city in some of those areas where a people at a household level might not be able to afford equitable access to the internet mm-hmm. or might be making a choice between a modern device and access to the internet. Um, mm-hmm. And and then just also maybe areas folks who are, are unhoused who don't who don't actually have a, a a roof or an address at which to subscribe to something, you know maybe someone living in in temporary housing or in a vehicle or sometimes in a in a city park because they're just that that um, uh, in between moments in life where they they just don't actually yeah. have a home to go to. So how do you deliver there? I think like that's the kind of thing that government can do that I don't I don't think we could rely on business to deliver. You know to say mm-hmm. hey how would we yeah. create this blanket. You know, it's up to government to take on those types of initiatives and to kind of close the gaps between what private sector does and, 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 and what society really needs. So I love that kind of mindset of saying, you know, it's not just about building a more mobile, compatible interface to our service and making sure it's easy to use. It's also making sure you find, figure out like that last mile of like who can't even get online right. and what might we have to do to make sure that there's equitable access to everyone in the community. Otherwise, we're, we're creating that famous digital divide and amplifying it. Exactly. Yeah. And to your point, you know, I think, you know, you're seeing a lot of businesses tackle some of these really tough issues, right? Like homelessness, yeah. racism, yeah. you know, these societal issues that need fixing. And mm-hmm. I think the one thing that, you know, regardless of how you feel about government, because, you know, everyone has their own, yeah. everyone's on a different spectrum, part of the spectrum at this point. But the one thing that um, you know, government is also an organization, yeah. you know, the the United States or Canada, like we have our own yeah. set of values, right, that we're trying to deploy and mm-hmm. organize around. And, you know, government, if run well, to your point, can really make sure we're putting all of our resources towards the biggest need. And, yeah. um, and so that's the piece that I feel like is missing, like with, you know, it's lovely that business owners and startups and things like that are trying to put their money where their mouth is. I think that needs to continue to happen, but it's about allocating those resources to the right places and making sure they get to the biggest need and the biggest gaps systemically, I think. Well, yes. And I think there's also, you know, this question of, you know, there's some subtleties in the conversation right now, you know, so Mm -hmm. there are, I'm going to, I'm going to, slightly simplified, you know, a, a picture here, but, you know, mm-hmm. there, and, and try and make this two positives, um, you know, ra- rather than one, but they are, they are, can be opposed to each other, but, you know, th- there's mm-hmm. a mindset that says we, need, you know, again, I, I talked about like a safety net or a floor below, which we don't allow other members of our species to fall in our communities mm-hmm. where we live, work and play, right. To say like, yeah, we, we, it's not good for any of us if we have people that are in complete crisis, you know, mm-hmm. because, you know, a, a that that that's that's unjust. You know, and, and yes. it's undesirable. Um, and I don't think people appreciate human suffering. I don't think most of us really appreciate seeing. We don't enjoy seeing other humans suffer. We wish for that not to be the case. And not everyone is able to lift themselves up at all times. You know, people have mm-hmm. genuine barriers. So there's that mindset, and then there's also this this mindset that, that exists. And, and I think it's a it's a it exists here in Canada as well. You know, but it's, it's sort of one of these beautiful parts of the United States when it's brought to bear in a positive context, but this sense of like self-reliance of doing it yourself, mm-hmm. you know, like that, that's, that's sort of, you know, the American dream is if I work hard, I can succeed. And, you know, this is a, a, a country in which you can, you can build something wonderful. If, if you, if you 
bring your best self to it, you know, and, and, and you lean into it. And I think both of those things are really positive concepts. You know, they don't have to be opposed to each other. Um, and yet we often, I think, line up around them and, and, and sort of like other the other side and say, well, you know, like the downside of safety net is people get lazy and people, you know, become dependent on the system. Yes, that's a risk of it. Right. And then, you know, the, you look at the other side and say, well, if it's just self-reliance, what about those people who, you know, someone's born with a learning uh, ability issue. Someone is born with, you know, maybe a physical defect. Someone's born into a context in which it's unlikely that they will survive without structured supports, you know, to help them, you know, grow. Maybe they're 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 born into a, a house with, you know, a fetal alcohol syndrome because of parents' decisions or, or, or you know, kind of cultural or community tr- patterns of behavior that were unfortunate lot, lots of reasons why we can imagine mm-hmm. someone might be born at a deficit in terms of their opportunities um well h- how do we help those people to, to succeed in this this you must be self-reliant you must do it yourself what if someone simply doesn't have the means the social capital the financial capital the the mm-hmm. health capital to succeed mm-hmm. on their own what if we actually have inequities here how do we balance that out and we can line up on other sides of that so i mean the the answer is communication we need to mm-hmm. learn how to talk to each other. I mean, we need to learn how to find common ground. And I don't think there's a, a good reason why these two mindsets have to be lined up on either side of a spectrum. You know, right. we can find balance between these two things. We can find middle ground. I think that's where a lot of folks in, in America and Canada as well really would like to be. But when all the information we get, when our entire media ecosystem has become this polarized, you know, us versus them space, it's hard to have dialogue because you genuinely start to feel like it's the, it's the other people that are making you unsafe. It's the other people that are the threat and the problem. When in reality, you know, we're sort of looking at the same problem from a different perspective. We kind of want something in the middle to happen. And, and if we can find a way to have dialogue and communicate again, I, I think that is our path forward. It's just really hard to do right now because we've lost most of our paths of having those conversations you know, some of our community institutions have changed, you know, the nature of, let's say, churches has changed a lot demographically in the last 30 years. Mm. That used to be a community meeting place, not for everyone, you know, not everyone had access, not, and not everyone was part of that. But it was at least a place where a certain percentage of a community would go and have dialogue and have hard conversations. Our demographics have changed, what church is, mm. what those, those things are to people, what's it been replaced by? You know, other other systems, we had, you know, media, we had, you know, storytelling, we had local news. Well, that's changed a lot, too. We only really have national news now. We don't really have a lot of local news anymore. So the information we get, you know, in our social, you know, we get things from social media now, which is designed right. to make us feel more things, feel mm. bigger feelings about the things we think about and talk about. Well, that's a hard environment for us to be successful in as the species we actually are. You know, like we're not really good. We're, you know, it, it took us a long time to know how to have phone calls and be effective on the phone. <laughs> yes. You know, we, we've, it, you know, like we had party lines and then we had, you know, phone etiquette and then we built call centers. You know, we're, actually, we're pretty good at the phone now, just at the point mm-hmm. where we don't really use the phone all that much anymore. Now we're just having to learn how we do all of this using these new tools, these new channels, these mm-hmm. new interfaces, these new contexts where bigger organizations are making making curated decisions about what we see and who we talk to and who we what we discover. Um, it's a hard place to be. So, I, I'm, you know, I, I like to be generous towards our species and say, you know, like we're, we can't expect to get this all right the first time. You know, th- th- this is, we're, we're going to fail in a lot of ways, but we need to find ways to give ourselves at least a hope of succeeding. 
you know, and, and I think that really comes to be, down to communication at the end of the day. How do we talk to each other? How do we listen to each other? Um, and, and that's a space that we've chosen to work in uh, day to day. Yeah, well, I think it's definitely um, in the context we're talking about uh, is I think it's it's something we can we can make an impact around immediately. Right. Versus, yeah. you know, it's something that um action can be taken to close the gap between, you know, reaching that threshold, right, and where people are. I think the yeah. the next step, which I'm sure you all are thinking about, is how do we go from just surviving to thriving? And I yeah. think that is the conversation and, and where more people want to see the momentum, which is like, let's not just talk about the the bare minimum of human condition and, and survival. Like, let's actually get to the point where everyone can have an opportunity to thrive and systemic and systematic barriers are removed. And a lot of times those systematic barriers are real barriers. (laughs) You know, it's communication, it's organizationally, it's leadership, it's things like that, that I think we have an opportunity to just do better. You know, the barriers are real. You know, you think of something just like, like language. You know, I, I would I would struggle if dropped in the middle of China to communicate with people because I don't speak the language, right? Like outside of any other kind of political or ideology or, or, or mm-hmm. anything, or culture, um, I just don't speak the language. How do I talk mm-hmm. to people that where I don't share a common language? And you sort of break mm-hmm. that down to even there are a lot of people who speak the same language that I do, where words mean very different things to, to, to me yes. than they do to them. You know, we have different ideas we're coming from different assumptions so you know you think of all these barriers we face and these disadvantages we face just to talk to one another it's, it's hard to do it's a learned mm-hmm. skill we don't it's not innate you know we have mm-hmm. to practice um and, you know we can't just drop a group of people in a room and assume they'll figure it out although, although you know we're remarkably good at that when we are in a place with sort of a a human scale to it of like a, yes. a group of eight people we can often mm-hmm. find a way forward not always, though. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a great believer in humans' capacity to communicate with other people. But, you know, systemically, you know, we need to look at how we're enabling this and how we're encouraging it and amplifying the qualities we want. I think where it gets really complicated at a government level is then you overlay scale, you know, of, hey, mm. we have all these community differences and cultural differences and language differences and, you know, economic brackets give you different contexts and different social capital in the world you have access to different information different perspectives we have all these overlays these things that can divide us and then you layer scale over that you know and like like the u.s is a big place and there are a lot of people live in america right and 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 how do you talk to all of them what is what is the platform you know how does that Mm. work and even more so how do you listen to everyone that's a challenge that's a Mm. big challenge especially where not everyone has shared interests in what story is being told um, so those, those are, you know, there's wicked problems in that space, but you know, w- like what you said is, you know, we need things that we can do and, you know, what we can do as individuals is just start getting into dialogue and talking to each other. And, you know, the old thing I say to my eight year old is, you know, two ears, one mouth, we start by listening first, you know? Yes. And, and I think that lesson applies. It's just, you know, you overlay complexity and scale sort of the wicked problems of doing this in big place. That's where that's that's challenging technology to put in place and like design thinking and like like how do we create these environments? Mm-hmm. But 
you know, it, it is, it's always encouraging to me, you know, how far people can come when they start having the right kind of conversations. And I think that just comes from the mindset that you bring to the conversation, how you show up and who you intend to be in that conversation. When you show up intending mm -hmm. to be an antagonist, that's probably where you'll end up and you'll probably yeah. have an antagonist conversation. Where you show up intending with the intention of being part of common ground and, and you know, finding you know, shared interests and, and shared goals, well, you're much more likely to get there. You know, and I, I'd, I'd like to yeah. see a little more of that with the adults who, who are running the place. I think that'd be nice. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, that would that would be wonderful. Um, yeah. and, I, and I would love to hear and, and this will kind of be the, the last question before we go into mm -hmm. um, kind of a wrap up. But, you know, you are running an impact based, impact, you know, values yeah. based organization. And I know we've talked a lot about kind of what what you're the, the solution you're providing, your organization is mm -hmm. providing. But do you have any perspective for people who are listening as to how you create that movement across your employees, right? And getting yeah. everybody along to this purpose that you're driving as a, a founder or president of a company. What are some things you've done and what has worked well? It, well, I'll, I'll say it's, it's, it's the most important part of my role and it's the hardest part of my role. Mm. It's, it's the thing that I most need to succeed at and it's the thing that is most easy to not succeed at, you know, just yes. given sort of, you know, um, and especially, you know, si since COVID, we've become a remote workplace too. So, you know, we're, we're missing some of the shortcuts of just being, you know, face to face with people. Everything is scheduled. Everything happens in like bite-sized chunks. And there's, there's not, there's not a lot of, um, uh, the, the edges of everything are fairly rigid and not, not as fuzzy as they used to be when we were in office. And there was sort of that chance for this in-person mentorship and sharing of information informally, you know, everything is formalized. You have to be that much more intentional about it. This is not accidental you know there, there used to be happy accidents everything has to be designed right now so just for me in the last two or three years this has been more challenging than any point in my career um mm. so what i actually do you know to be more successful in this space is you know managing communication i need to be consistent and clear and i really can't go off topic you know the, and I, i'm a wanderer I'm, i you know i have a background as a musician and an artist and you know way back in the day i will just talk for hours about almost anything people will listen to and i'm I like <laughs> i probably overprivileged the sound of my own voice in, in the world but you know managing self creating an environment of safety where people can ask real questions you know people need to believe that they will be heard they need to believe that while you can't act on everything in real time, you're actively listening, you're hearing them, you know, that, that, that it matters when they speak and that they, they can make a difference. Um, so people need to believe that they can be trusted. And we have so many social barriers to being successful at work, of, you know, like ideas of hierarchy and ideas of what power is in an organization and ideas of what we're allowed to do. And so for me, it's the, it's the unlearning process, helping people unlearn a lot of those things. And then relearn a new way of working, which is I am on a team and I am empowered and I can make decisions and I can make certain kinds of decisions, but not other kinds of decisions. You know, there's certain decisions yes. I can and can't make and what are those? But within the set of what I can do, I, I'm empowered to be successful and to solve problems and, and to make clear decisions with my team, hmm. encouraging, you know, creating an environment where people learn to listen to each other, you know, and learn, learn to hear every voice. You know, we, we do something. Uh, here's a small example of one thing that's sort of a ritual in our organization that we do. And it's, it's connected to how we make decisions and it's called our alignment model. It's probably not as prevalent in my organization as I would like to believe it is, but we're growing it. Um, but, you know, the idea that when we have made a decision, first we decide whose decision it is, and then it's the decider's accountability to ask for alignment. 
And we use mm-hmm. a, a, a numeric scale of one to five, you know, where one is, this is a terrible idea. I can't go along with it. I will dig my heels in. I'm in full resistance mode. And you need to know that as you're processing this decision. So I'm going to say it out loud and explicitly right up to five, which is I am both intellectually and emotionally committed to this idea wholeheartedly. I believe it. And each time we're making a decision, it's the decider's obligation to hear every voice. And it's a, it's a quick thing to do because it's numeric. If, so, mm-hmm. if three people are a five and one person's a two, we should find out why. Because this decision is probably not going to be successful if someone's got their heels dug in. And they see something about this decision. Either it's their misunderstanding and we need to help them come along. Or it's the rest of our misunderstanding. And they actually have a unique perspective based on experience mm-hmm. or skill set. Um, and we need to hear their voice because it improves the quality of our decision. Um, so to me, that's a small thing that it, it can be adopted by organizations. But it leads into that, like, I, I, there's every time important decisions are getting made on my team and with the group of people I work with, my voice will always be asked for, heard, and recorded. You know, and when mm-hmm. I have a major opposition to something, I have a chance to explain why and unpack my thinking, which either lets me change my thinking and see a different perspective or share my unique perspective in a way that makes the entire team stronger. So I think there are things you can do, you know, it's hard to get a whole group of, of you know, there, there's 60 of us in our shop and, and it's remarkably hard to get a group of 60 people always doing this and doing it well, but we're on a, we're on a journey there. But where we do this, I think it vastly improves how we communicate, how we make decisions. And again, it's not, it's not a silver bullet. It's not magical. It's just that idea. We need to communicate. We need to talk. People need to feel heard. They need to feel like they have a, a legitimate seat at the table and that it's not just the, the highest paid voice in the room that makes all decisions and owns all 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 the the accountability of those decisions because it's so easy to think we've made a decision and not really have made a decision just one person got what they wanted and 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 it's not even actually going to happen because nobody else agreed with them they were just Mm. quiet and then eventually they will just undermine it over the next three months and that i potentially great idea could fail just because we didn't get everyone bought into it and, and we didn't have a culture in which people believe that decisions matter, that they have a voice mm-hmm. and that they can be part of solving problems. That's, that's the kind of thing that we've done that's been successful. And I think it's very achievable, you know, for organizations to adopt a ritual like that. And I think it changes your culture over time. Yeah, and I think it's a good lesson as to how other organizational systems can work like like government, right? Like what is our mechanism yeah. for listening? And not that that specific tactic would work for, you know, millions and millions of people. But I think the essence of creating the space, mm-hmm. taking the time to listen, internalizing what you're hearing, viewing the differences that are different than yours, but, you know, being open to be changing your mind uh, and then communicating back and saying, hey, yeah. this is where we landed. I considered yeah. all of your all of your opinions. Thank you so much for your feedback. This is the direction we're going in. Any reasonable person, typically, as long as they've had time to articulate and as long as it doesn't go against their ethics and integrity, uh, any reasonable person is going to be, oh, I totally get it. Okay. Yeah. But I think there's this like fear sometimes with um, leadership where it's like, if I ask for it, I'm going to open this can of worms and it's going to be horrible. Yeah. And I, so yeah. I, I love I love the way you're approaching that. And I think it's also, it's a, a great parallel to the work that your team is doing for for other organizations, because I think the same type of um, structure is needed most of the time. It, isn't it funny that, that like, just it's so characteristic of humans, you know, we just think like we have this bias, like 
like loud voices, forcefulness, authority, you know, get, gets things happening. But like that idea of as a leader, you know, at, at, and you can be the same leader, whether you're like forceful authority. And yet you're like, I wonder if there is a can of worms. Wouldn't it be good to know? Wouldn't it be right. better to know that my people think yes. I'm a fool for making these suggestions? They see it totally different. They're never get, they, they never believe we're going to get it done. Wouldn't I want to know? Wouldn't I want to engage in dialogue? And at least if I know that I have that problem, I can solve it. Whereas if I just say, we're doing X, get out of here, get to work, and people walk away not believing it, the odds of success are low, you know? And yeah. so, I, you know, by, by believing this, you know, we can't have those real conversations. There's one of my favorite books is, is a book called An Everyone Culture. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I, I should have the authors memorized because I, I, I've read it a couple of times now and I love it. And, and it's a fact that's fleeting from my brain, I'm sorry, but An Everyone Culture, it's a couple of folks from Harvard. And, you know, they sort of say, like the premise is, what if you could come to work and not be doing two jobs, the job that is in your job description and the job of play acting who you think you need to be to fit into that organization, right? Yes. Like pretending mm-hmm. to be inside of that culture. Is it like we're literally asking people to do two things at the same time with their brain and we're getting mm-hmm. less value on the thing we're actually paying people for because we're asking them to also be play actors the entire time. You know, that takes work and cognitive load. And, and it, you know, what if you could just eliminate that second job? And just mm-hmm. actually say what you think and be who you are and build a culture where that's possible, you know, where that could be successful. And I, I, to me, that's just, it's an inspiring question to ask. Yeah. And I just pulled up the the book. So it's um, for those of you who are listening and everyone culture becoming a deliberately developmental organization by mm-hmm. Lisa Leahy yes. and Robert Keegan. And Robert yeah. Keegan, Lisa and Robert. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. And that gets back to, you know, um, you know, creating an equitable culture. And, you know, I think every, you know, there's, there's, everyone thinks about cultures as top down thing, but it's also, it's definitely a groundswell more than it is a top down. Um, And culture is also a reflection of leadership. So there's a lot of different angles to be, you know, from an organizational development perspective to shape. And the first, the first step is just a reality check. Right. And I think, you know, um, folks at the C-suite, you know, are kind of like, where are we at now? Where do we want to go? And these tactics that you've mentioned around the, the alignment model and all of that is a way to get closer to where we want to be. Yeah. So I appreciate you sharing that. And thank you so much, Paul, for, we could talk all day. I think this could, we could probably do another Clearly. whole podcast episode on what we're, you know, different elements and unpacking. So tell us where people can find you if they're interested in chatting more or yeah. partnering. Um, and then we'll wrap up. Yeah. My, so uh, our website is yellowpencil.com. Uh, that, that's our digital agency. Um, you can find me. I'm at Paul Bellows on Twitter. Uh, I'm not prolific on Twitter by any means, but but I'm, I'm there and you can find me. Um and you can email me at paul at yellowpencil.com. Um, and, you know, if, if you're interested in the way we work or if you're sort of in the public sector, if you're if you're working alongside or kind of you know around the public sector, you just want to have these conversations. Um, I'll say I have a little podcast, too. It's called The 311. It's just sort of highlighting the people inside of government who are doing this work. I think they have interesting stories. So you can probably get that in all the places you get this awesome podcast. I've got way fewer episodes than you do. I, I It's 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 <laughs> I, I'm. It's it's hard to publish when you're also running an agency, but we've got some great stories there of people doing interesting, impactful, meaningful work around change. Um, 
And, and yeah, uh, those, those are the places you can find me. And I, I'd love to hear from you. And, and, and I'm always looking for like minds and people who are, are caring about the things that I care about. Thank you so much, Paul. It was a pleasure chatting. And we'll have you on the podcast soon again, I'm sure, as, as things progress. Anytime. This is what I like to talk about. <laughs>